There are lots of F words that we're supposed to avoid in the workplace: fear, failure, flirting, fighting, and of course the F word to end all F words, which I won't say here because I like to avoid an explicit rating. But there's another F word, and this is one that we avoid at our peril: feelings. Our question this episode: How can we talk about our feelings productively at work? Welcome to episode forty-nine of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Bilo, and I am so delighted that you've joined me. My guest today offers us some quick and easy ways to create more connection in the workplace by embracing our feelings and emotions rather than avoiding them. We also discuss the art of asking for and receiving an apology, as well as strategies for moving forward with a vision or project when your colleagues aren't quite on the same wavelength. Remember to stay with me after my chat with Melanie for some quick closing thoughts and your call to action. Dr. Melanie Katzman is the author of Connect First: Fifty-Two Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. It's published by McGraw Hill, and it will be available October twenty-second, two thousand nineteen. She is a business psychologist and consultant to the world's top public and private companies, government agencies, and nonprofits. She is the founder of Katzman Consulting and a founding partner of the social enterprise Leaders Quest. Katzman was a senior fellow at the Wharton School's Center for Leadership and Change Management, and co-created and hosted the show "Women at Work" on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. If you want to learn more about Melanie and her work, as well as find links to any of the resources we mention in this episode, I invite you to visit howcanisaythis.com. From there, you can also access past episodes, submit a communication question for reply in a future episode, subscribe, learn how to leave a review, or offer feedback. Hi, Melanie. Welcome to the How Can I Say This podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with you this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Beth. Good morning. Well, I just found your book delightful. It was so refreshing, so direct, and、um, with so much practical information. And there were a couple of things that I focused in on that I wanted to spend our time with. One of them was around emotion. Sure. You know, your book is all about connection and how to connect with people in a more meaningful way,、um, in a joyful way, and tapping into emotion is an obvious way to connect. Yet we're often hesitant to do that, especially in the workplace.、Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can seem very risky and could even feel inappropriate.、Mm-hmm. And I think of all of this as being tied up in vulnerability.、Mm-hmm. So why is vulnerability important? And so this is a double question. Okay. My apologies for that, but why is it important?、And And how can we be appropriately vulnerable? Great questions, Beth. So, first of all, I think that workplace assumes a artificial fiction that we come in and we play a role to avoid any kind of emotional response, and that's simply not true. And we become afraid of emotion because it seems messy and complicated. Some people would even say overly female,、mm-hmm. dangerous, vulnerable—all of those scary words. And the reality is that we can't have passionate workplaces, places that are driven. By people who care, if we don't tap into emotion, so emotion is there. It bubbles up. 
actually escapes inappropriately if we don't allow a release of emotion. So I think that it's not just about a fear of vulnerability. I think it's actually this artificial attachment to reason, to think that we can think things through versus understanding that work is a full body sport. That means your psyche as well as your heart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm thinking about my husband is in the middle of um, having a difficult conversation with someone and he's to the point where he's just saying, you know, I've got to be able to show that I'm upset. You know, it can't be a a really super nice conciliatory conversation. At some point, there has to be some emotion and and directness about that brought into it if we're going to make any progress. A hundred percent. And people, unfortunately, will like end a text or an email with an emoji and think that now the conflict has been resolved. (laughs) The smiley face. The smiley face does not do it. You have to have the conversation. And I think if you peel back layer, what you see is that we are all so similar. And that's what gets lost. So at work, there's so much jockeying for position. People are assuming certain identities, playing certain roles. And that gets in the way of identifying the ways in which we are coming from a shared place. And even if the exterior seems so different, my experience has been having worked around the world and in different sectors, is that you just peel back a layer and we're so similar. And if you can connect from that point, the conflicts are resolved. Now, if your husband can have the conversation from a place of, this is why it's troubling to me, mm-hmm. the individual who's receiving that message ideally has an opportunity to talk about what it means in the context of the work relationship, not just, I'm trying to get this done, you piss me off this way, I'm disappointed because of that, but what does it really mean for us and how do we clear the path going forward? Yeah, you raise a great point about... Um the other language I've heard is like the common stake or, mm-hmm. you know, what's the common ground that we have, the shared stake yeah. that is in between us that um, it's like the point of agreement yes. that we can yes. find and then work from there instead of working from the the disagreement. So I would even go back a step. I think you're 100% right, the shared stake. But even that is where we're going to transact. Mm-hmm. And I would say, let's take a step back and say, before we even get to that shared stake, why does that shared stake matter? Yeah. What is it that makes that important to you? Let me understand what your outcome is and why. And then I tell you my outcome and why. And then we can, from a place of empathy and understanding, begin to have a conversation that ultimately may be a very tough negotiation, but I'm looking at you and you're looking at me as people who want to get to a shared stake because it matters and because you matter to me in this moment. That's not light fluffy, that's actually effective bargaining, but it comes from a place of who we are as people and then who we are in the role that we're playing in the organizations that we work. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you for that. And one of the other things that you talk about that is one of the most vulnerable things that we can do is to apologize. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's something that we, you know, it's something else that we often avoid. Um, Well, let me back up. It's something we avoid. And part of it is the other thing that I've noticed is that people aren't very good at apologizing. They almost issue non-apologies. So how can we get better at saying, I'm sorry? So there's there's two aspects of that. One is we're afraid to say, I'm sorry, because it it seems as though we're weak if we do. Mm -hmm. And I would argue it's just the opposite. It takes great confidence to be able to say, I got it wrong. And that can often be destabilizing in an interaction. If somebody thinks you're coming in with your dukes up and you go, no, actually I was wrong. 
changes the whole mood. You can feel the tension drop out of the interaction. And so I encourage people to experiment with the power of saying, I'm sorry. It will not diminish you. It will actually make you that much more effective. Yeah. And then I can tell you a couple of tricks on how to do it well. Yes, please. (laughs) Um, So one of the things is to say I'm sorry without without actually trying to justify it. So I'd be specific. I'm sorry. And this is what I am sorry for. Because if you just write, I'm sorry, it doesn't really demonstrate a recognition of what the problem was. So be specific. This, I'm sorry for this, for this impact, because that allows people to A, understand that you have some insight and B, gives them a chance to explain to you the impact of your behavior. Because sometimes we are apologizing for something we think went wrong only to find out that actually the effect of our action was something very different. And it's that kind of information that we need to be successful at work. You want people to bring information to you because in the absence of it, you can make continued errors. So you want your apology to open a conversation that allows you to learn something. You also want to give people a chance to talk to you and not reload and again justify because when you apologize let someone else then speak absorb it and don't say i'm sorry i did this but you made me do this Beth, <laughs> because you did that that's why i did this that's not an apology that's an erased apology yeah. so if it's going to be a true apology be specific be ready to listen and don't argue your point the apology is really an open-ended conversation it's not a justification yeah beautifully said one of the things that's also awkward about apologies is receiving them (laughs) and and i know i've been on that and actually fairly recently where someone asked me they they said you know i hope you can forgive me right and I felt like uh, it was really hard. Like it it felt awkward to say, like, I forgive you. You know, there's something about that that just didn't feel right. And in this case, because it was a person that I am close to, you know, I gave them a hug. I said, I love you, you know, but I didn't explicitly say, like, I forgive you or it's okay or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Mm -hmm. So what about when you're on the receiving end of the apology? Well, I would say that probably at work, you don't want to give a hug and say, I love you. <laughs> I love you, you. I, I, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it may feel that way. Um, so if you feel that way, you can say, I'd like to give you a hug, but I know I can't. Right. Um, you know, I think that oftentimes we want to erase the discomfort of a compliment or an apology because it is emotional. And I suggest you let it linger. Just sit in the moment, listen, feel it. And accept it and say thank you. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a it's a wonderful exchange. It brings people closer. You know, I always say that relationships are forged because of a conflict that you've gotten to the other side of. People think that I only have a good relationship if I've had no conflict. Just the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's getting through the conflict that strengthens your bonds, gives you a history of knowing that you can work through difficulty. So don't be afraid of the conflict. Enjoy it. Let the person finish their apology. So if they're coming to you, there's a really good chance they've worked hard on getting to a place where they can tell you, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Let them give their presentation. Yeah, um, That's a, a sign of respect. And also sit perhaps with the discomfort you have of just receiving a nice experience. Because oftentimes we're moving so quickly at the workplace and going for the most efficient interaction that just pausing for those few minutes is luxurious, but it's really energizing. Yeah, 
Yeah. So I love that. There's just a simplicity. The answer is like to say thank you yeah. or I appreciate that and to just let it sit, like you said, and respect the other person's vulnerability and courage to say, I'm sorry. And, and respect the beauty of that moment. It's the same thing as getting a compliment. Yeah. You know, like so quickly we say, oh, yeah. it's nothing. Oh, stop. Or you're terrific too. It's like, just stop and just enjoy that sweetness. It's wonderful. Yeah, you raise a great point about like, don't negate the apology because of your discomfort. Like say, oh, that's not necessary. Or, oh, no, it was no big deal. Obviously, it was to that person if they made the effort. Exactly. To say. Exactly. I mean, a good apology probably took a lot of preparation on the part of the person who's giving it to you. Honor that. Absolutely. Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit. And thank you for this, because you know, vulnerability is, it's so important in effective communication and and in conflict and in productive conflict. And anytime we can learn how to do it a little bit better is a true gift. (laughs) So thank you for those strategies. And there are lots more in the book. So I can't wait to share that with people. Um, To shift gears just a little bit, I'm thinking about somebody who's in a workplace, and they have a vision. Mm -hmm. They have an idea of how things could be. And yet other people can't see it as clearly as they can. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they're not getting the support they need from the system to be able to do what they feel like they're being called to do. Yes. And they might even feel like and resist, you know, playing politics. (laughs) Like, I don't want to play games. (laughs) I just want to be able to do what I need to do. And you just need to see what I see and everything will be okay. (laughs) Right. And we know it doesn't work that way. So what are some strategies for, you know, collaborating with others, winning over others, when you feel like the system is working kind of against your efforts? Um, so I want to just jump on that word politics for a second, mm-hmm. because I think politics gets a, a bad reputation at work. And so if you're just playing politics because you're moving chess pieces, you may not be as effective as if you are really attending to the relationships. And I think that having the deepening of relationships at work is different than playing politics. It's really building up a support network and respect for what you do because you demonstrate respect for what others do. Yeah. And in that way, if you are ahead of the system, you know, the chapter 34 in my book is except you won't be understood. Sometimes mm-hmm. the system isn't ready for your ideas. And so you can get frustrated and mad at the system because the system is developing corporate antibodies that are trying to kill your ideas. And you can feel like you are under attack or demeaned. And instead, I encourage, first of all, a mindset of if I'm ahead of the curve, I am speaking a language that people don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. And so it's part of the delight of being an innovator or a pioneer. But it's also the responsibility for me to then translate what I'm doing into terms that the person who needs to understand can fully appreciate it. So it's up to you to say, Hmm, what I'm working on is going to have this benefit to my audience. Let me start with what matters to them. Let me talk about what I'm doing, not in code, not in fancy jargon that distances people. Let me make it simple. And I think too often we fall into the trap of showing how smart we are by speaking from a place of complexity. And what you do is you alienate and shut down your audience versus bringing them with you on the journey. Yeah. 
And that's another point you make, and I, I can't remember if it's another chapter or just a, a subheading around simplicity versus complexity. Um, you know, be a simplifier, not a complicator. Yes, that was that was another chapter. It's actually one that I, you know, I continually come back to with people because you know, in a in a world where you have a lot of tech platforms driving new innovations and engineers that are working on things. I see that, for example, the customer service teams or the customer experience teams, the product teams, the engineers, they're all needing to speak, but they're not speaking the same language. And there's a way in which everyone's flexing their muscle about the importance of their role versus understanding that the better you can describe what needs to happen in simple terms, the more valuable you will be. Not like, hey, I'm the one who's going to save the day because I've got this complex equation. Like, no, that's great. We have the footnotes. Anyone wants to hear that. But come with a clear message so that everybody in the room can understand and work on a shared solution. Yeah. You're really calling on us to set aside our ego. (laughs) It is an amazing thing, Beth, because, you know, the more you reduce your ego, actually, the more positive things come to you, right? Like one of the chapters I have is about being a magnet. And that has to do with being the person people want to be with. But if you're running around, you know, kind of flaunting all the things that you've done right and all the things that you've accomplished and have no time for anybody else, no one's interested. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, it's like, yeah, you you might get a couple of people looking at you with, you know, some envy. But after that, it's greater chances that they're going to undermine you than help you. Yeah. So drop the ego and you'll increase the cooperation. Yeah. There's a great uh, quote. It's on my wall. I can't remember who said it. And it says there are two commandments. Commandment one, believe in yourself. Commandment two, get over yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Exactly. Exactly. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Exactly. So much of what goes wrong at work is that people get insecure. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, as a clinical psychologist working with people in therapy and then going to companies and working with people in large strategy um, and change programs, I see that at the heart of things is often our own insecurities that get in the way of praising other people, sharing our information, making the time for others. So to be able to be confident is not only helpful for yourself, it's helpful for others. Mm -hmm. But to be egotistical, you're then taking that to another level where it becomes destructive. So it's, you know, life is about balance. (laughs) We got to get the right amounts of each. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to wrap up with a general question, a a takeaway for folks. Um, And I know this is challenging because you have an entire book and I'm asking you for one thing. So (laughs) I'll ask it anyway. Um, What's one easy communication strategy that anyone listening can implement right away that will make the biggest difference in their relationships, whether that's at work or at home? All right. I got two words for you. And they are got it. Mm. I encourage people, if you receive something from an individual, whether it's a text, an email, a phone call, it's a request for you to pay attention to something, say, got it. The most distressing things happen at work when people feel that they have been disrespected because somebody is ignoring their message. You don't necessarily have to have an answer right away, but 
don't fall into the trap of thinking I'm going to clog up someone's inbox because I acknowledge receipt. Let somebody know that there's a person on the other end. It makes a huge difference and it cuts off all sorts of spiraling negative self-talk for the person who's wondering, do I matter? Will someone respond to me? Is there an individual on the other end? So it sounds incredibly simple, but saying got it will make a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking about the people I've had interactions recently with both people who are very good about that and people who are not. Right. <laughs> and even though, you know, I might um, respect those folks equally, it gives me sort of a different impression. And I'm impressed with the person who just says, got it, or thank you, or I'm on it, or I'll get back to you later. You know, all it is, is it just at that acknowledgement, but it makes me feel like they're respecting my time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it is another way of saying you have been seen. Yes. Because I think we all want to know that our presence matters. And I've worked on putting together this, this proposal, this schedule of work. I've submitted this budget. I've submitted this PowerPoint presentation, whatever it is. Let me know you got it. And then you can do whatever you need to do to be able to have the reason to response. But in the absence of that, it feels disrespectful. Yeah. So those two words have a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. There's been, this is chock full, and I love that simple two words, got it. That can make such a huge difference. Yeah. Um, that's a great note to close on. So, Melanie, how can people learn more about you and your work and your book? Uh, um, please visit me at my website, melaniekatzman.com, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Melanie Katzman. And my Facebook page is Melanie Katzman, PhD, and Katzman is K A T Z M A N. Awesome. And I will make sure that there are links to all of that on the episode webpage so that people can reach out and uh, learn more. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks, Beth. Before sharing a few closing thoughts, I want to offer a quick reminder that if you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, subscribe, and leave a review. It is definitely one of the ways that you can bring more courageous conversations into the world. Everything that Melanie shared here contributes to our having better relationships with the people we care about, whether that's coworkers, friends, or family members. As she said, there is strength in expressing our emotions, especially our regret in the form of an apology. Our conversation made me think of the analogy that Chip and Dan Heath share in their brilliant book, Switch, when they write about the elephant and the rider. They say that when change is happening in an organization or system, there is often too much focus on logic and reason, which, in the analogy, is the rider. Remember, Melanie mentioned that bias towards reason at the start of our conversation. The rider is focused on what's practical, what makes the most sense. The problem is the rider is sitting on and trying to control a big elephant. And that elephant represents our emotions, both rational and irrational. It can become unwieldy and difficult to manage if it's not getting the attention that it needs. In order to move forward, the elephant and the rider have to work together. The rider has to acknowledge the elephant's emotions, and the elephant has to recognize where reason can be useful. That's part of how you create the balance that Melanie spoke about. Here's your call to action related to how to approach emotional conversations. The next time you're in a difficult situation with a colleague, friend, or family member, take a step back and ask yourself a few questions. What is the situation that I'm observing? 
How do I feel about what I'm observing? How are those feelings affecting my relationship with the other person? How are they affecting my ability to do what needs to be done? Are these feelings ones that I can work through on my own, or do I need to share them with the other person? If I decide to share them, what's most important for them to know? And what do I need or want from that other person once I've shared what's on my mind? For instance, you might simply want them to listen and acknowledge how you're feeling, or you might have a request that they make some sort of change in their behavior or approach. Be ready to state that up front. One way of saying it is, I'm feeling a bit frustrated, and I'd like to share with you what's going on so that we can think together about ways to make this whole thing less stressful. Another way might be, I have a few concerns that I feel are worth sharing with you. Would you have a few minutes to just listen and let me know if I'm worrying for no reason? The bottom line when it comes to your feelings is to notice, acknowledge, and name them. Decide if they need to be shared, and if so, consider what's most important to communicate. And finally, be clear about what you're looking for from the other person. Just like Melanie's simple "thank you" and "got it" replies, you can share your feelings and make your request in straightforward terms. You don't need long explanations, examples, or stories. Just share what's on your mind and in your heart. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This. Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you for joining me and Melanie for this conversation today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. 